and welcome to Being Well. I'm Forrest Hansen. I'm joined, and I would normally say as usual, but it's actually been a little while since we've done one of these, by Dr. Rick Hansen. So, Dad, how are you doing? I'm good, Forrest. And as always, I'm just tickled pink that I get to do this with you. Yeah, it's really lovely to do this again. It's been a little while. Uh, a lot has happened in the world since the last time that we recorded one oh, of these really? podcasts. <laughs> Yeah, just a little bit, a little bit. Um, and even questions like, how are you doing, feel very loaded right now yep. um, in a lot of different ways. And I was just kind of reflecting on that as you answered, where for me, I can answer that on the level of uh, the kind of trite, oh, I'm doing great answer. Or I can say, I don't know, man, I'm pretty exhausted. I'm pretty overwhelmed. I feel deeply sad about many things that are happening out in the world. And I'm also hopeful and optimistic and feel really buoyed by the response of so many people to many of those things. Mm -hmm. And that is a very kind of complicated emotional stew to be uh, reckoning with in a quick question like, how are you doing? We're going to talk about doing less harm. And I want to pick up on a word you used there and a related word. The word you used was reckoning. There is a reckoning. And I think as individuals, there are always reckonings in our lives where we face certain things. Um, I can think of times I've been on meditation retreat where I'll suddenly just think about some issue or person in my life and for the next day and a half in the, in the quiet and therefore the intensity of a meditation retreat where there's no possibility of a distraction, I will really face a reckoning internally with the harms I've done, with the feelings I've had, the longings that maybe were unfulfilled, the remorse I might feel. There's a kind of reckoning. And I think we can scale that reckoning also at the level of public policy and our civics. It's not my particular expertise, so any comments I might have about that are you know, really those of, of a citizen, someone who's a human like others. But clearly, I think in America and worldwide, you know, we're facing reckonings of different kinds. So there's reckoning, where you come to terms with something. And I think about the foundation of doing less harm is clear seeing, really recognizing. Also, frankly, repentance. And I want to shout out to a, a, just a stunning, profound, powerful essay from Kristen Powers, uh, who's a USA Today columnist, a CNN commentator, you know, been basically a centrist, a, a very committed Christian in, you know, in, in American politics. And she wrote a, just a searing, profound essay about facing up to white racism. And uh, you recently wrote an incredible essay, which you turned into a short podcast uh, called uh, We Should Be Uncomfortable, the we being you're sp speaking as a white person to other mm -hmm. white people, including me. Yeah. And I wholly agree with you. Um, so there's a repenting. There's a repenting, which obviously can have a lot of excess baggage to it and fire and brimstone. We don't necessarily need to go there. But at a wholehearted level, I think about uh, the little I know of you know, Alcoholics Anonymous and one of the steps of the 12 steps being a fearless and searching inventory, a fearless and searching inventory of our own deeds and misdeeds, right? Our own reckonings and repentances. So I think this is, this is a time for both. And uh, I feel also that in service of that, it's, it's useful to recognize that there is a kind of nobility, a dignity, if that's a preferred word, in this reckoning and this repentance. 
there's a there's an honor in it if you do it sincerely. If you're willing to be brave enough to face the discomfort, if you're willing to open your heart large enough to to really understand in all kinds of new ways how terrible it's been for other people and how you've participated in a system that has put knees on the necks of people literally and figuratively for a long, long time. You know, when you really are willing to engage that process in a wholehearted way, you can feel there's a kind of nobility in it. And not like you're giving yourself a pat on the back, like, oh, what a groovy person I am. But it's more like it helps you to do the hard work of this. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that there's a lot that you said there that it is nuanced and complicated, particularly this relationship with are we performing that reckoning for our own sake or are we performing that reckoning for the sake of the people that we're actually trying to come to the support of and uh, the aid of the awareness of, however you want to talk about it. And when uh, you propose this topic of do no harm, mm -hmm. which I do really want to get into and I think is valuable, there was uh, one kind of question mark that arrived above my head about it. And it was basically the idea of, well, isn't that just the first step? Shouldn't we be much more active than that? And I think that part of that process of being more active about it is recognizing the ways that we are harming that are not visible to us. Mm -hmm. So the statement, do no harm, is not about just get off the battlefield. That statement to me is really about recognizing the ways in which we are doing harm, coming to terms with them on a really pretty deep level internally, doing some uh, some really potentially, frankly, uncomfortable and painful work inside of our own sense of self, inside of our own understanding of the way that the world works, inside of our own understanding of uh, white privilege, right, white priority, white supremacy, however you want to kind of frame it inside of the world right now in terms white of the broader social. I think that's a very useful broad notion, yeah. Centering of whiteness, yeah. Absolutely. And the ways in which that when you take whiteness as the baseline, it becomes invisible. And that's part of a much broader conversation that is for another time. But that is just one way in which the harms that that does fades into the background because we don't see it because it's just like the bedrock of the interaction. And therefore, the harms of that get kind of invisibilized yeah. because they are just assumed as the baseline by society. And if I could just kind of interject, because a person might actually reasonably ask right now, well, what's that have to do with being well? And yeah, go ahead. Yeah. And so I wondered, maybe you could take a crack at that. Why, what does doing no harm, including or doing less harm, including the recognition of how we participate often, many of us participate in systems that harm mm -hmm. others in which we get benefit from those systems in various ways, right? Why, why is this relevant to being well <laughs> at the individual level? It's a really great question, honestly. To be really cynical, it is absolutely possible to quote unquote be well and also be a horrible person. Mm -hmm. It's totally possible. Mm -hmm. Like theoretically, I mean, I, I can think of a lot of horrible people throughout history who probably in their experience had pretty pleasant lives. Yeah. I, the Roman emperor Nero, like whatever. He yeah. led probably a pretty lovely life for his time and he was also a horrible person. So 
in the most kind of self-centering way possible, yeah, you can be immoral and also be well, quote unquote, or at the very least, be happy. And that, I think, is a really important distinction, this idea between hedonia and eudaimonia. So you can be hedonic without being eudaimonic. Mm -hmm. You can be happy without being fulfilled. Mm -hmm. And to me, one of the things that I think um, is a real game changer for people's overall sense of wellness and fulfillment in the world is when it stops being about their egocentric experience and starts being about the broad allocentric experience. And I can say personally, to, to do a moment of like pretty vulnerable sharing here, there is a real, there was a real discomfort for me to really coming to terms with the ways in which my own privilege had influenced my life, including my success. That is like a real threat to self, mm -hmm. you know, in a very fundamental and deep way. Right. What I didn't earn it entirely through my individualistic American. Yeah, exactly. That is a threat to self. Efforts. Yeah. Yeah. And I was part of a broader system. And to acknowledge the ways in which I was raised and reared inside of that system to start to become aware of the invisible impact that system had upon my behavior whether it be uh, unconscious or not, frankly. This is a long way of kind of answering your question where for me, that was initially painful, but there was actually this sort of beautiful thing happened when I moved from being defensive toward acceptance. And I could just let that down. And I could go, oh, of course this is the case. And there was no longer this feeling of resistance around it. Uh, and the internal separation that I was having to do to maintain that resistance. Instead, when I just moved into full acceptance, all of a sudden it was like a weight off my shoulders. Things mm. got so much lighter. Yeah. And this isn't about like making things easy for white people, let's be mm. totally clear here. But just from a pure mental health standpoint, yeah. I think it is such a healthier way to interact with the world. So for me, um, being well isn't just about how one individual maximizes their happiness in this world. It's about how we as a collective, the common human, can be well together, how we can work through this stuff together. And if you're gonna do that, you have to be understanding and accepting of the experiences of other people. We've spent hours and hours and hours on this podcast talking about our relationships, talking about interactions with other humans in our family, outside and broader society, what we can do to manage the people who are kind of a pain in the butt, what we can do to get along better with the people who are really important in our life. Well, it's just, just a hop, skip, and a jump to the broader human, right? Not just those close circles, but the ones that expand out from us out into space. And for me, that's what being well is really about. How do we make that system as healthy and happy as possible? And what can we do inside of ourselves on an individual level to make that happen? So that's my uh, mm. soapbox answer to that question. Yeah. Apologies if that ran a little long. Yeah, reflecting on this topic of do no harm, right? It seems to me that it's good to know your why. So there's a category of whys that have to do with benevolence, morality, disinterested, selfless service to others. Those are all kinds of fundamental principles. And I think about the classic Hippocratic Oath, you know, first of all, do no harm. If you have a 
if you're in a position of authority and power over someone in the framework, let's say, of medicine, and you could extend that to other professions like psychotherapy, in that context, you're there for the patient. You're there for the client. And their needs trump yours during in the frame of your professional relationship. So in that context, whatever your personal preferences are or values are, uh, you have a higher duty to them, and you need to fulfill that duty. Okay, there's that category. That's a very reasonable category. It's also very interesting to explore the ways in which doing less harm uh, and aspiring to doing no harm at all is a factor in one's own personal wellness and well-being in different ways because there is, as to borrow a phrase from the Buddha, the bliss of blamelessness. So you just feel deep down inside yourself, you've done the real best you can today, and you can take refuge in your own sincerity. That's a really important thing. You're going to make mistakes. I make mistakes. Uh, I've been bumping into a lot of uh, thoughtlessness recently that was painful and harmful for others that kind of was sourced through my own whiteness, if you will. And that's painful, but I know deep down inside, I'm sincere about it. I really want to be better. You know, I really do. I know you, Forrest. You have tremendous sincerity. You know, we can take refuge in our sincerity uh, and feel better, and also that can help us stay motivated, you know, to do the work we can do. That's true. It's also true, obviously, especially in an increasingly interdependent, intertwined world where we can't, like Nero did, fiddle, as it were, while Rome burns in his own little sanctuary. We're bound up together. And uh, whether it's at the level of the economy or disruption or uh, unrest or uh, whatever it might be, if, if others prosper, we tend to prosper as well in all kinds of different ways. So that, that's helpful too. And then the last thing I just want to say about it is that I, I really do feel that deep down inside it, everybody is a moral impulse, is a fundamental integrity. Layered above it could be layers and layers and layers of, uh, of um, all kinds of other things, including sociopathy, right? We've had people like Rhonda Freeman and others uh, on the show to talk about sociopathy and pathological malignant narcissism and so forth. All right. But still, I'm going to hold on to my belief, at least, that I'm sincere about, that deep down there is a goodness in us. And when we violate that sense of goodness, we're worn down by it. Uh, it reduces the full wellness we can experience. We might be able to skate and, ha as you put it, have some kind of short-term uh, hedonic gains, hedonic, hedonic gratifications of various kinds uh, that keep the guilt, the remorse, the shame, the moral hazard, the moral burden at bay. Uh, but eventually, we have to pay the price, if only in the last mm. few minutes of our own life. And on the other hand, if we know deep down that as best we can, we've been willing to be lived by our goodness and do as little harm as possible, you know, that really serves us. And then last, do less harm, do no harm applies to yourself, right? Do less harm to yourself. Uh, we're among the beings, you know, that are the, the targets uh, of this approach too. So these are some of the ways for me, at least, that doing no harm, doing less harm uh, serves the wellness of the individual. And then, of course, it gets very interesting what this means, as well as, as you said at the very beginning, the importance of recognizing that there's more to moral conduct and there's certainly more to 
being well than just not harming. Totally agree. There are a lot of different ways that we could go here and, and directions we can go. I kind of want to take up on something that you sort of mentioned there, which is uh, relating to the inevitability of harming. Mm-hmm. And I've been thinking about this a lot recently in a social justice uh, context. And to give credit where credit is due, a lot of this was spurred by the conversations that we've been posting recently, where I interviewed a bunch of people who do extremely high-level, professional, high-quality, thoughtful work in this arena. And I am definitely an amateur inside of this arena relative to them. So I just want to kind of give that shout out. And if you listen to those episodes, you'll hear some really pretty detailed thinking on this. But one of the things that has really stuck with me from the kind of social justice angle is the idea that it's impossible to be perfect. Yeah. And indeed, perfection is not expected. So I think that there is this thing that I've seen going around online on Facebook, social media, things like that, where it feels like there's a lot of fear around having a maybe good intention, but saying the wrong thing, doing the wrong thing, just being very delicate. And it's kind of moving some people into paralysis a little bit, where they could, if they were not feeling that paralysis really become a super effective ally in a lot of different ways. And of course, you know, one reasonable response is just like, get over it, move on with it, whatever, do what you can in the world and just take it on the chin. But for me, another much kind of softer, gentler, kinder response to that is to kind of shrug and say, well, mistakes are inevitable. It's about how you repair. Mm -hmm. And that I think is really so central to this conversation to acknowledge the inevitability of harming. And then to ask yourself, what am I going to do when I harm? Do you let it slide by? Do you talk to them and say, hey, was this an issue? Do you ignore it entirely and not go through that process of self-reflection because that allows you to remain comfortable? Like, what are your choices here? And I think that the choices that we're making in our response to acts of harm, particularly um, non-deliberate acts of harm, I won't say unintentional because I think that removes too much agency, but kind of non-deliberate acts of harm and how we move through those skillfully. I don't know. Do you have any kind of reflections on that? Well, I think repair is fundamentally central in mm. just life and relationships. And uh, you know, as you get older, you think a little more and more about maintenance and deferred mm. maintenance and paying the piper. And I think a reckoning, which is kind of where we started, in my personal opinion, one of the uh, lessons of this time of the coronavirus is the recognition that a lot of us were propped up by uh, our activities and interactions and experiences. And as long as the music was playing and the sun was shining, it was fine. But when the storm Mm. of the plague came, the music stopped, (laughs) ba-boom, we're left with what we've developed inside, which can Mm. sometimes seem like an empty cupboard. And Mm -hmm. one of the reckonings is with the importance of Uh, repairing uh, inside ourselves and restocking inside ourselves and in our key relationships, like people we're forced to live with now uh, or we can't sort of escape to. We have to deal with things, actually. So there's a a reckoning here about the importance of repair really generally. One of the things I have to tell you in my significant relationships is I really watch the willingness of the other person to repair. And I've just come to see that 
if something happens and they don't repair or seem to resist repair, maybe I notice the first time or two it happens, then I start to probe, what is your capacity to repair and what's your commitment to repair? And uh, I think the bounds of a healthy relationship are framed by the bounds of repair. The takeaway on our side is to be someone who's prepared to repair who's receptive to repair and bids for repair, which often come with a lot of topspin and and moral accusation and people don't say it exactly the right way and they, you know, they turbocharge their accusations. Okay, but it's basically a bid for repair. After the first few waves of that go by, you know, what can we fully acknowledge, take responsibility for, and commit to correcting going forward? And to be that person, to be that person who does less harm or repairs harm, let's say, through processes of repair. I think about that a lot. And what do you make of that? Well, I think that that's, again, to return to your original question to me, what does this have to do with being well? Yeah. I think that that's such a great example of what doing no harm has to do with being well. Yeah. Because in order to do less harm, yeah. as we're saying, because it's impossible to do no harm, yeah. we have to be capable of repairing our relationships. And when we repair our relationships, guess what? Our relationships tend to get better. Yeah. Like lacking that skill, it's very, very hard to form effective, productive, happy relationships relationships with people out in the world if we don't have good repair skills. Um, so that's just one way that do no harm lines up with being well more broadly. So I just wanted to kind of highlight that as an example that you were giving of the moment yeah. um, of why that is so central and so important. So unless you have a specific follow-up to that, I would love to kind of keep it moving into another question or thought here. Uh, if I could, just a quick add-on. We can yeah, also ahead. repair our side with people who will not repair. They will not receive our repair and they won't repair their part. And you know, I've had examples of that. And there are examples with people that are no longer in your life. They've, they've died. Maybe your parents have died. And uh, it's really quite powerful and profound to face your part inside your own mind, mm. to resource yourself so you can do it with some sense of perspective and recognition, but to really be honest about your part. And even in your own mind, the person is there inside your own mind, even if they're no longer walking this earth. You can talk with them inside your own mind and you can acknowledge your part. Uh, you can even ask for forgiveness or you can just, a really important detail here, you can forgive yourself for what happened, which is really quite freeing. You wanna make sure you know, you're doing it in integrity and not just giving yourself a past and, a past and so forth, but it can be really quite powerful when you're trying to repair inside your mind with people that you can't repair with out there in the world to in it to forgive yourself uh, they won't they can't maybe but you can forgive yourself for your part of it i want to highlight that for a second because i think that there's a lot of nuance there um because you know rightfully somebody might respond to that by saying exactly what you did which is well wait you're kind of not allowed if you will morally to forgive yourself if you haven't actually made a a good faith effort to repair and to improve the situation to all the things so i just want to highlight a story real quick i don't actually know if frank shared this on our conversation with him i don't think he did ostaseski yeah yes yeah but in uh, his wonderful book the five invitations there is a story that i remember it really stands out to me it was of a mother and a daughter and um 
the daughter actually was on her deathbed. Uh, I, I forget exactly from what, but she was very ill from something, and she had an extremely estranged, uh, damaged relationship with the mother. And the mother came to her on her deathbed. There was a lot of contention. The mother was really doing the best she could to give the mea culpa, do the whole thing. And then there's this moral question of, like, does the daughter have a responsibility to accept that apology? And she chose not to. Uh, in the story, Frank says that, I, I'm going to paraphrase this, the daughter kind of right before she died sort of sat up, looked at her mom, and basically said something to the effect of, I hate you, I've always hated you. And then she died. And that was it. That was the final communication. And then Frank did a lot of work with the, uh, the mother afterward to engage that moment and to do the process of both acceptance, that was a thing, it did happen, and it was based on elements of this person's behavior that they really did do that really were problematic. But then to be able to not just be in a total trauma cycle around that for the rest of your life, you have to at some point hit a point of at least acceptance, if not forgiveness, oriented toward your own behavior. And I just think that that's a really good way of framing at that point that you're making that we all do things in life that we are ashamed of or that we wish we hadn't done. And we can choose to marinate in our self-flagellation around them, or we can choose to make the correction, learn the lesson, and try to move on and try to forgive ourselves as best as we can. And that's really what you're talking about here. Oh, 100%. It's not, it's yeah. not real if you haven't really let it land and so forth. But you're, that example, I don't know the particulars. I would just make a general comment here that's, that you're, in, you're inspiring in me, which is our own commitment to doing no harm or doing less harm for all the reasons is independent of what other people do. Yes, the way they act can help us do less harm in various ways. And we can certainly ask them or try to influence them in various ways to do less harm to us. Meanwhile, they do what they do. And one of the weird, <laughs> I'm not saying it's good, I'm just saying it's true, weird lessons for me of, you know, now in my 60s and reflecting, is this combination of a, a genuinely deepening commitment myself to compassion and good conduct, generosity, and so forth, while at the same time, <laughs> this very clear-eyed, jaundiced, straight-up view of how nasty and harmful many people are. And many people seem committed to being. And we could talk about it forever, the social reasons they're that way, their childhood experiences, blah, blah, blah. Hey, if we're responsible as adults for not harming and we're called to that standard, guess what? That's not an unreasonable standard for others as well. So there's a recognition that we're surrounded by people who are just casual about harming, who, for example, with regard to the current you know, coronavirus pandemic in the face of all public health authorities of any you know, credentialed kind, 
could not be bothered to not pass this um, disease onto other people. They just can't be bothered. And in that case, I don't know the story actually what's going on on the daughter, but from the daughter's standpoint, um, she, you know, she was prepared to do that, which was harmful, clearly, to the mother, whether the mother, quote unquote, deserved it or not. The daughter was prepared to do that. And to me, it's kind of freeing to be clear-eyed in a funny kind of way. It, it's sort of when you just sort of give up about trying to make others not harmful. You know, do what you can. Make them, you know, get them to put a label on a cigarette pack that says, yeah, this stuff will give you cancer, you know, pass laws and stuff like that. But particularly in our personal lives, uh, friends, family, neighbors, workers, and so forth, it's kind of astonishing how harmful many, many people will casually be and certainly have been throughout history. Think of the harms to uh, people with black bodies uh, in America over many, 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 many centuries. And so in a funny kind of way, just accepting the fact of it, we don't approve of it, but accepting the fact of it sort of helps you disengage almost from the struggle with it as a fact and refocus where you actually do have influence is on you not harming others yourself. What do you make of that? Well, I, I think it's interesting. And I think the balance of um, one of the things that allows you to come to that stance of non-harming is acceptance and understanding of your history, whether that be your individual history or that be the broader traumatic history that groups of people have been involved in over time. And talking about history, again, getting back to the mother and the daughter, it's really interesting because Yes, that may have been a harmful action that the daughter performed, but was it also a necessary action for her? And that's where I think yeah. you get into a really interesting conversation here. Absolutely, that did harm to the mother. There is no question about it. But was the harm that it did to the mother matched by the psycho-emotional benefit that the daughter received in that moment? and her ability to release that, her ability to make a full communication, and all of the good stuff associated with that. I don't know. In the book, Frank Wright writes, I think, very eloquently about, yeah, that was a really brutal communication, but it was also what that person needed to do in order to achieve their moment of release and rest at the end of their life. And that balance, I think, is really tricky. It's very, very, very challenging, right? Because the daughter has a right to make that communication. That communication was true. And yes, it was harmful, but it was also true. And maybe its accuracy and the release, the truth-telling around it allowed her to come to a place of peace. I don't know. Only she can know the answer to that question. Um, but I just think that it's an interesting illustration of a very complicated idea that I don't have like a super clear view on, to be honest. Yeah. Um, I think of examples that are not at all so dramatic, let's say, mm -hmm. where let's say you're committed to non-harming and you know may all beings be happy and you're trying to relieve suffering and so forth. How do you face the fact that if, let's say, you ask for something you really want from another person or you address the fact that they've made agreements with you, uh, including currently, I'm thinking of someone I talked with recently about uh, being safe during you know, this time of plague and practicing appropriate behavior, like wearing masks to not you know, pass this disease on to the person I was talking with. So what do you do if you know 
that if you bring something up, you're going to upset somebody. They're not, you know, they're going to, you're going to harm them in a, in a sense. Is that harming? You're upsetting them. You're making them uncomfortable. Maybe actually also they want something from you that you don't want to give them. They want to be your mate. You know, they would love to keep dating you perhaps. And, you know, it's just not for you. You're going to part company for whatever reason. And you know that's going to be upsetting for them. What are your rights to assert yourself? And what are your rights to pursue wholesome ends, let's say? Yeah. And I think that part of what we are finding, you know, inside of the conversation itself is how nuanced a topic this is. Yeah. And how there is a lot of complexity around how we think about doing less harm and how we prioritize effectively different kinds of harms. Mm -hmm. um, am I prioritizing my own benefit? Am I prioritizing the collective benefit? Yeah. When is it okay for me to do harm to another person in order to achieve a greater good? Yeah. And I think that you know we're not gonna answer philosophical questions like that inside of the bounds of this podcast, but it's useful to kind of name them as these big philosophical questions that I think there are a variety of answers to some of those answers are probably better than others, but there are a wide variety of views on. So from moving from the theoretical to the practical, um, what are some of the things or what are some of the resources, some of the ways that people can support themselves in doing less harm? Yeah. First, uh, look at your intention. I think that's very, very fundamental. What's your intention? And uh, that's certainly true in terms of how we judge professional conduct. Was it a, you know, an inadvertent mistake or was it malicious and deliberate, for example? Or in terms of uh, morality, like you know, in the, let's say, the Buddhist tradition, and I believe this is also true in the Christian, Judeo-Christian tradition, what's the intention behind an act? Did you speak from your heart to just tell the truth on your way out the door that you've just hated someone? Did you do it as a release? Did you do it ultimately out of a kind of impulse toward justice? Maybe even the thought that it might serve you, the other person, to just know the truth of it all? Or perhaps was the intention of some kind of act just sort of venting or spewing or making one final score uh, in, out of righteous anger on your way out the door? Right. What, what's the intention? So I think that's absolutely central. Absolutely central. What's the intention behind it all? What's the will? Is it ill will or goodwill underneath it all? And for me, there's been a really interesting process often where I start out with ill will. <laughs> you know? Or there's, there's some less than noble purpose. Right? I just want to prove my point or you know, get away from something or you know, get above somebody. And then what happens almost is like the better angels of our nature start to catch up with the initial surge of poor intent, and we start gradually giving over increasingly to the good intentions. I think that's really central. I think another one, honestly, is to um, really focus on, with other people, little harms of tone that add up over time. Little harms of overcorrecting others, telling them how to do it differently. We just don't need to do that. And lately, I've been really interested, actually, in the grit. It seems so small. Any single grain of sand is so small. But the grit that gradually accumulates between us and other people, 
those little moments of exasperation, of righteousness, of movement into superiority, or reproach, you know, kind of a complaint that's not ever fundamentally satisfiable. And that grit really adds up over time. So that's another thing too that's very much in our in our reach to think about the harm in particular words, in particular tones. Do we really need to say it? The harms of interrupting people uh, casually, including as an expression of dominance in the hierarchy. And I think actually, as I think about it, there have been studies about that. Men are much more likely to interrupt women than women are likely to interrupt men when they're talking. So that would be a second suggestion. Yeah, I think those are two great suggestions. And just to add another one, or maybe another two, Yeah, pretty quickly here. The first is maybe for yourself, alongside intention, understanding your own moral hierarchy, mm -hmm. understanding the things that, as we were saying earlier, where are you going to draw the line around different kinds of issues? Yeah. Doing some soul searching around that, frankly, because that's a big, complicated topic. Uh, but also deciding, you know, if this goes against my belief about what level of harming is appropriate, that I'm going to take an active stance against it. Is it going to be just in me, or I'm going to move, or am I going to move that active stance out into the world more broadly? Yeah, that's a personal question. Um, I have my own answer to that, but that's a personal question. And the second thing that I would say is, as you were saying, awareness, not just of your intent, but of what your inner justification is. Mm. So like self-awareness, uh, and this moves again back to a lot of the social justice stuff that I've been talking about recently, but it's much broader than that as well. Like awareness of our needs individually, awareness of our tendencies as people. Uh, my awareness that I like to monologue a little bit and that I'll talk a little too much from time to time with other people. So I need to kind of tamp that down a little and make sure that other voices are entering the conversation. Those awarenesses, that kind of like tendriling out from yourself, I think is such an important part of being an effective human in the world. And we've, of course, uh, done a lot of podcasts and written, and you've written a lot of things on the subject of awareness and on broadening that self-awareness. Yeah, and I, I appreciate what you're saying there for us, and I want to underline it, that there are the little harms and then there are the big ones, right? And um, I think it's, it's really useful to attend to little harms of commission and omission in our relationships, the grit, if you will. And I want to underline the harms of omission. I had an experience where I, I taught a, pro a program at one point, and I had co-teachers along with me, and they were not mean to me, they were not critical, but of all the people in the room, they were probably the least interested in what I was teaching, which was a very strange experience. And so we've had moments often where we're just leaving it all in the field. We stagger back to the locker room metaphorically, you know, and other people just kind of look, look at us and then go back to their crossword puzzle or, or whatever they're doing. Wow, that's kind of a harm, you know? So I'm, I think it's useful to pay attention to harms of commission and omission, including the harms just who do we leave out? What categories of people do we leave out of the conversation? That's an omission. And by not naming them, we aid and abet larger social systems that have left them out in extremely consequential ways, for example. In addition, very much, I want to underline 
the power of what you've said, which is about paying attention to big harms too. And uh, the, you know, the, the ways in which we participate and can participate in larger systems that are very, very harmful. And so I think that's also really great that you're talking about that. And when we actually step up, we stand up for other people, uh, we say, no, 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 no. You gotta go through me. I feel like we've covered a lot today. And so I think I'm gonna kind of bring us to a close here, unless there are any sort of final reflections that you wanted to offer on this topic. I wanna tell a little story. I I told it in Buddha's brain. Uh, It was told to me. A a friend of mine went to Thailand, I think, maybe Burma, to uh, go on retreat for many, many months. And so he, in that situation, became a kind of apprentice monk, kind of, sort of. And so he meditated many hours every day in this little hut in this very rural, uh, poor, you know, part of the world. And uh, he had a pit toilet nearby, and in his pit toilet, uh, many, many ants and insects would gather because there was water. And so he would use this sort of little pit, and then he'd take a cup of water and wash it down and just go about his day. And after about a month of being there on retreat, his meditations were not going very well. His mind was kind of disturbed. And he just sort of mentioned very casually to a senior monk that he was talking to on a daily basis just how his practice was going that uh, you know he would take a cup of water and wash down the area around this, basically a hole. And in the process of that, he was washing down a whole bunch of ants that had gathered there, just casually. And he just mentioned it in passing and asked the monk if that was okay. And the monk just looked at him and said, is that your vow? You walk into that environment, you undertake the training precept not to kill any living thing how you exactly parse the language of that. Do you not go walking in the jungle because you might and probably will inadvertently crush some tiny little insect at some point? You know, how do you mark it? But the monk just looked at him and asked him, you know, is that your vow? Is that your commitment? And my friend, with some shame, recognized, no, of course not, it's not my vow. So then he became much more careful and mindful uh, and not casual about killing other creatures who, you know, live and want to live, as is demonstrated by their behavior. And interestingly, his own practice really, really took off at that point. Mm. And I asked him about it, and it's such a really interesting example. And he said, well, it's really interesting when you stop being a danger to others, including the simplest among us, the ants, if you will. When you stop being a threat to them, you feel increasingly less threatened yourself by all that is. And there's a deep, deep teaching in that that we can keep coming back to again and again and again. And I think one of the ways in which doing no harm as kind of an aspiration, you know, like an asymptote mathematically that the curve approaches but never quite, 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 quite touches because to live, we participate in systems of death inevitably through extension. There's no way around it, uh, at least at the level of the microorganisms in our own body. And so, you know, as, as we practice this, this aspiration of doing no harm and doing less harm, we can feel increasingly safe in the world altogether and increasingly you know, open to life altogether and, and, and lived by it. 
we participate in systems of harming. There's just no way around it, but at least we can aspire to do as little harm as possible. And so if I could, I'd, I'd love to just offer this brief quotation from Larry Yang, a uh, significant uh, teacher. Uh, and this is a quotation in, in my book, Neurodharma, that I, that I got with his permission. Uh, the quotation is, may I be loving, open, and aware in this moment. If I cannot be loving, open, and aware in this moment, may I be kind. If I cannot be kind, may I be non-judgmental. If I cannot be non-judgmental, may I not cause harm. If I, can't, if I cannot not cause harm, may I cause the least harm possible. Larry Yang. Yeah, I think that's a lovely quotation and a great summary of so much of what we were talking about here today. And particularly, I think that parsing of not so much do no harm, but do as little harm possible. And that's, I think, been kind of the moral of the story throughout this conversation. Along with the intention that you, Forrest, have highlighted of, of offering as much benefit as you can along the way. Yeah, absolutely. Hopefully you've enjoyed today's conversation on doing no harm. We explored a variety of different topics uh, having to do with the nuances of doing harm, the understanding that we are all going to do harm to someone or something at some point, and then the resources that support us internally in doing less harm or doing maybe as little harm as possible. Uh, or even perhaps only doing harm that's in line with our broader moral view, however we want to kind of frame it. Um, and I think that the nuance of how we parse that is a really important personal investigation and conversation that we all have with ourselves. So all of that being said, if you've been enjoying these podcasts, we'd really appreciate it if you would take the time to subscribe through the platform of your choice and maybe even leave a rating and a positive review. It really does help us out. And also, finally, before we go, we have a Patreon account. It's patreon.com slash beingwellpodcast. I'll put a link to it in the description of today's podcast. So if you go into the show notes, you'll be able to find that. Click on it. And if you would like to support the show, uh, it really does help us keep on doing these podcasts and keep on doing this work. And we really do appreciate your support. So all that said, until next time, thanks for listening.